following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Daniel chapter 4 at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. 
This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Our passage and the conclusion of Daniel 4 is clearly a warning about the danger of pride. Nebuchadnezzar is an extreme example, we might say. No ordinary person, someone who in his day would have been, in a sense, more powerful than the President of the United States, the most powerful nation on earth right now, because there were no checks and balances in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Quite a contrast to Philippians 2, where we think of Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, humbling himself. Daniel chapter 4 is about God humbling the proud. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, we see the problem of pride. Why did Adam and Eve take of the fruit of the tree and eat? Yes, they were deceived by Satan, but much of it was due to their pride. They trusted in their own judgment rather than trusting the word of God. It's interesting that in Genesis 11, when the Tower of Babel takes place, and this tower is being built, descriptive phrase there is that it was to reach to the heavens, not very much unlike the phrase that this tree, indicating Nebuchadnezzar, had its top in the heaven. And all the way to the book of Revelation, where The Apostle John, in his revelation of things to come, describes an evil entity with the word Babylon, showing that God's ultimate victory would be over Babylon and any other hindrance to the people of God. But the application of this text, as we will see, is not just to great individuals, the mighty, the wealthy, the kings, the presidents of this world that are out there somewhere. But as hard as it is for all of us, the application is also to our own hearts and how we must learn to boast only in the Lord and in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't we all know from experience how it's very difficult to recognize the sin of pride in ourselves? but we're very quick to see it in others around us. In fact, of the seven deadly sins, the only deadly sin that our society still sees as deadly and it being wrong, I think, is probably the sin of pride. That's still a negative thing in our society. Even now, people just don't like when others are proud. And God sometimes uses life's difficulties to remove the blindness from our eyes. And God exposes and confounds our pride in order to transform us from the inside out through Jesus Christ and his powerful work in our lives. Here in Daniel 4, then, we see a journey, a journey King Nebuchadnezzar takes from pride to humility by way of a great fall. 
we saw, we read the first half of this. I'm not going to read all of it, but we're going to talk about it. It's interesting, Daniel 4 is bracketed by two doxologies, by the king himself. We read the one in verses 1 to, 1 to 3, how Nebuchadnezzar describes the greatness of God. He says at the end of verse 3, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And then if you turn to the end, where in verses 36 and 37, we see Nebuchadnezzar after his great fall and his time away. At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Certainly that is a strong message from our text that God is able to humble those who walk in pride and Nebuchadnezzar is the single example of that in our text. The narrative begins with this letter of praise. It seems like an official letter or proclamation that Nebuchadnezzar is issuing here. And it's interesting that it it changes from the first person narrative halfway through to third person narrative, but still the point is the same. And what we see here is Nebuchadnezzar has this terrifying dream. He's not sure what to make of it and He calls his wise men, and they can't make anything of it. Here he even tells them the dream, and they can't make anything of it. We didn't read about the part that Daniel interprets the dream for him and basically tells him, Nebuchadnezzar, O great king, this is about you. And unless you humble yourself, God is going to bring you low. And in verse 28 of Daniel 4, we see that all of this comes upon him. There comes a time after 12 months, a year after this dream, and it's interpreted for him. He's walking on the roof of the royal palace. And verse 30 gives us an inner picture of his heart and life. It's interesting that we have this here. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Babylon was a great city that he had built He had enlarged it. Two of the seven wonders of the ancient world were connected to that city at the time. One was the magnificent wall around it, a wall with a circumference of probably over five miles, if Herodotus is correct, a wall that was so wide that it was said that a chariot pulled by four horses could do a U-turn on the top of it. That's pretty big, isn't it? I think of that as maybe, I don't know, halfway across this room at least. This massive wall, a sign of the strength of the city. And and also the wonder of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. 
you wonder if he was looking down on these from his rooftop. You know, houses in those days weren't made with angled roofs. There wasn't a lot of rain there. And uh, they were made with flat roofs. If it was part of the house, you would go up there. You would get a breeze up there. I'm sure his house was one of the tallest houses there. And he was looking down. And he had built these hanging gardens, historians tell us, for his wife, who was from the more mountainous, hilly area of Media. I'm sure she said, honey, would you build me some gardens like I'm used to at home? And so he built these for her. And maybe he was looking down on them and thinking, look what I have done. I'm sure there were lots of other things he had done with his treasuries, with his monies, with his power, looking what he had done and what he had built. And verse 31 says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And this all unfolded. And he spent seven periods of time. Commentators debate whether that's to be taken symbolically for a period of time, the Hebrew number for or was, was it possibly seven years? We do not know for sure. It could have been seven years, but it need not have been. It was for a period of time, though, that essentially Nebuchadnezzar lost his sanity. He was humbled. And the emphasis of the text is really the bestiality in the sense that this identification with the beast. It's almost as if the Bible is saying Nebuchadnezzar was so proud of the civilization that he had created, that God humbled him and took him outside of the bounds of it in the sense to be like an animal in the field, eating grass. His fingernails grow long, his hair grows like feathers of a bird, it says. And he's caused to be humbled here with the dew of the, of the land falling on him until he would learn the lesson that God had for him. And in verse 34, a key verse that we'll look at more next time, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar turned from a great persecutor of the people of God to, in a sense, a witness for the God of Israel. It's interesting, we don't know whether we could describe this as a conversion experience or whether this was a momentary, temporary humbling of this great king. The end of Daniel 4 is the last that we hear from him. His last words are this doxology of praise to God. It's interesting that when he calls Daniel in, in verses 8 and 9, he says, at last Daniel came in before me. And notice that he's writing this official decree after all the events. And notice in verse 8, he says, At last, Daniel came in to me. He uses the Hebrew name for Daniel in this official decree. This, this is after he has experienced this great humbling. But he mentions, He who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Some commentators make the point, and I think it's a strong point, that he's saying, in a sense, 
This was the man that I called Belshazzar because I had a different perspective in those days. And in whom is the spirit of the holy God? Certainly a polytheistic phrase, isn't it? But now he honors and gives praise to the Hebrew God, Yahweh, Jehovah, and he uses Daniel's name. This great fall took place, but it was not inevitable. It's interesting that, as we note, the dream takes place, but then there's this entire year that goes by. We find in verses 28 30 that when he's walking on the palace roof. It's been a whole year. And this monumental fall is about to take place, but it's as if God has spared him for an entire year. And Daniel has already told him the kind of thing that he should take to mind. He says in verse 27, after interpreting the dream, therefore, O king, Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel is talking about the fruit of repentance that Nebuchadnezzar should contemplate in his life. But apparently the warning and its effect wore off within that year or else it never took hold. But in any case... Nebuchadnezzar was lifted up with pride, and God brought him low. It says, while the words were still in his mouth, it was immediately fulfilled by God. I think it's helpful to stop, and as we think about about pride, to think about Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. One commentator I read made this point, and I thought it was very good. When Nebuchadnezzar is lifted up with pride, where is he looking He's looking sideways and downward. He's looking at what he has done, what he has built. In a sense, he's comparing himself with everyone else around him, every other human being around him, and saying, look how great I am. And really, he's a very unique personage in that way. None of us can compare ourselves to others like he can. None of us are as great in our relative worlds as he is, as he was. How unwise it is to compare ourselves with others. How unwise we are when we can always find someone that we can look better when we compare ourselves to. Isn't that what we tend to do? And Paul says in Corinthian that it is, it is unwise. When we compare ourselves with ourselves, we are not being wise. After the end of these days of humbling, in verse 34, we see a very different place where Nebuchadnezzar's eyes were drawn. And it's very key to our text that Nebuchadnezzar, after the, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. At his restoration, Nebuchadnezzar was looking upward to God. Independence, in a sense of newly gained humility and supplication, we would say, looking to God. Doesn't that say so much about the nature of pride and its cure. As we look sideways or downward, when we compare ourselves to others around us, which we all tend to do, we are not wise. We need to fix our eyes on our God and trust and depend on him. 
I would like us to draw four applications from this text. The first one is this. God rules over all for the glory of his name and the good of his people. God rules over all for the glory of his name and the good of those who belong to him. And we are called to trust in him wholly. I want us to undersee how this narrative, certainly we immediately go to the application of the danger of pride. But when we think about Daniel as a whole and the book as a whole, we see this reoccurring theme of great encouragement to God's people to trust in their God even in light of their helplessness before a seemingly all-powerful ruler. We're encouraged here to trust in God. Think how it must be for the people in Ukraine right now. You know, they seem to be pawns between the powers of Russia and Vladimir Putin, and then there's the European Union and the United States, and, you know, they really don't have power in themselves. They can't really extricate themselves or do much, but there are these massive powers that are really going to be the forces that bring about what happens in their nation in weeks and months to come. This account about Nebuchadnezzar and his great humbling, in a sense, draws back the curtain of who really is in control of the world, doesn't it? The people of God need to see this and hear this again and again and again. It's like the Wizard of Oz and the scene at the end, you know, when they've been to the Wicked Witch's place and they're back. They're seeing the wizard finally who's going to fix everything. And, you know, is it the little dog who pulls the curtain back? And the wizard, who's really just a man, says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Don't worry about him. Look up here. It's almost like God is just drawing the curtain back and Nebuchadnezzar, who the people of God, this is the king who has destroyed Jerusalem, who has carried God's people into exile in horrific manner, who rules over all, who snaps his finger and people are killed if he wants to. What is it like to be the people of God and to feel so helpless? I think that we in the West, Christians in the West, probably don't have a very deep sense of this because we have historically been been very empowered in our society. We haven't been persecuted hardly at all, if any, certainly a little bit here and there, but usually just scoffing, ridicule, things like that compared to persecutions around the world. What is it like to be in North Korea? Most North Korean Christians don't have the Bible at all, but if they got a scrap of Daniel 4 and they read this, what would their reaction be? I I would assume it would be deep encouragement that Kim Song-il or whatever, however you say his name, is not ruling ultimately, but God is. This is a reoccurring theme in the book. We've already seen this over and over again. In chapter 1, when the book is introduced, verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The very first description of the result of the war against Judah was that the Lord, Yahweh, gave King Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. 
the victories Nebuchadnezzar won were not really his own doing. Daniel 1 says it's from the Lord. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 4, these dreams, Nebuchadnezzar is given understanding of even his own dreams only when God gives it to him through his servant Daniel. We've seen that theme, and it comes out again here. All the wise men of Babylon can't help him. Here he even, in chapter 4, tells them the dream. Back in chapter 2, we thought, boy, Nebuchadnezzar, if you only told them the dream, they'd certainly be able to come up with it. And it kind of surprises me in chapter 4. There's this tree. It's reaching to the sky, and it's cut down. I feel like I could have probably come up with an interpretation of that. Like, you know, didn't, didn't anyone come up with that? Maybe it was that no one had the boldness and courage of Daniel to say this to the king because it probably would have been off with your head. I remember when Saddam Hussein was ruling. I remember reading a news story about Iraq in those days that one cabinet member of Saddam Hussein had the courage to tell him at one point near the invasion by the U.S. that he should take stock of things and this person was put to death. Saddam Hussein didn't want contrary advice at the time. And then in chapter 3, we saw through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that Nebuchadnezzar cannot harm the hair on the head of one of God's people in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar certainly is not seeing this that way at all. Chapter 4 dawns, and Nebuchadnezzar is talking about this, and we see him describing his experience, and we just see what he would have probably been saying. Nebuchadnezzar leads the army. He directs the great building projects. His treasuries fund all of these things. He holds the power of life and death of all the people around him. Everyone bows to him. Even entire nations bow to him. He can make or break anyone, all submit to his rule. What breathtaking power. But we know, and God's people are being told here, to find comfort in knowing who ultimately is in control. And I think it's amazing when we read in verse 19, when Daniel is finally called in, we read, Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Then he goes on to interpret the dream. Stop and think about this. Notice how Daniel takes no pleasure in telling Nebuchadnezzar the dream. You know, what if a dream teller in Poland had been brought into Hitler's presence to tell him his dream in 1943, let's say? Do you think that dream teller would have been sad to tell Hitler, you're coming down? You know, your tree's going to be chopped down? Daniel shows concern for the king's well-being. This is the king that took Daniel into captivity, that tore him away from the home of his youth in his early teen years and took him to live far away. And we don't know how he separated him from his family, his loved ones, certainly his nation, all of this. Why wasn't Daniel consumed by, by vindictiveness? 
Why didn't he just glory in telling Nebuchadnezzar, this is what's going to happen, and I'm so glad. I don't think he was just looking out for his life. I think that Daniel had true compassion for him because that only comes from a knowledge of God and of God's sovereignty and his loving care for us. How are we able to not seek revenge and say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord? It's by having that same kind of spirit, this knowledge that God was on the throne. It was no small thing for God's people in exile to trust in their sovereign and loving God. We may not be in exile, but there are certainly, or at least there will be, things in each one of our lives over which we have no power to change. Maybe a disability, maybe an extremely difficult and chronic relationship issue, maybe some other kind of brokenness, financial setback, uh, a health issue or a mental health issue you or a loved one may be experiencing. And we may not have the level of power Nebuchadnezzar have, but had, but we certainly have dreams of what we want our lives to be like. It's not wrong to dream. It's not wrong to want certain things in life. But we must learn to submit those dreams to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is in control of our lives. We belong to him. And our agenda for our lives is not his agenda. We read Romans 11, the ending, how inscrutable is the mind of the Lord, how his ways are beyond tracing out. We cannot trace out the pathway and the plans that God has for each one of us. We have our little kingdoms, but in a sense, to use the analogy, we must constantly be giving the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the city to our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting our lives to him, trusting in his loving and sovereign care. Secondly, we go to the main application of the text. God will ultimately humble all the pride of man. That's the concluding verse of Daniel 4. Those who walk in pride, he, God, is able to humble. And Nebuchadnezzar can say that from personal experience. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says it this way, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Someone has described Nebuchadnezzar's experience this way. A man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he is only a human being. I like that. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a god or like a god, and he had to be humbled and become like an animal in order to see that he is only a human being. And Nebuchadnezzar, we can see from these doxologies at the beginning and the end, that he comes to see that whatever greatness and power he has is a gift from God. A lesson that he needed to learn. It's interesting, isn't it, when we stop and think about it, when Daniel 4 opens and Nebuchadnezzar describes this experience and he says, Peace multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. I think it's insightful that as we see this, what humbled 
Nebuchadnezzar. It was his personal experience of God humbling him. We might ask, what about Daniel chapter 3? Why wasn't Nebuchadnezzar humbled by what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It's interesting that the language here, the language he uses to introduce this, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth. That's the same phrase from chapter 3 when he had said, all peoples, nations, and languages must worship the image. It's the same thing. Now he's saying, I've got a different story for you. It's interesting, isn't it, that that miracle outside of himself, these Jewish men being protected, that is not what humbled him. And we think about Christ's day. We think of the proud of heart of Christ's day, the religious leaders of the time that Dr. Rogers described this morning when he preached on John 3. And you think of the fact that these people saw tremendous signs and wonders, yet they were not humbled by it. There needed to be a humbling within. It was not saving, we might say, to them. It did not produce saving faith. In fact, Jesus has very harsh condemnation for Capernaum and and says that it will be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah because of what Capernaum saw. They should have repented. He says Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes if they would have seen what you have seen. He was humbled. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by a personal experience of God humbling him. The stripping of way of everything in which he once gloried. God will ultimately humble the pride of man. Psalm 73 is an interesting psalm, and it's a psalm that speaks about the pride of man. And in this psalm, I'm not going to read all of it, but just a part of it. Here we have an example of a wise, mature believer looking around himself in the world And really being tripped up by the fact that God doesn't humble the pride of man immediately. And often he doesn't even do it in this life. Asaph says that his feet had almost slipped because he envied the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph is saying, when I looked around me and saw the proud and the arrogant, the wicked, prospering. And he goes on to talk about them in verses 4 and following. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. He goes on to describe them. And eventually, the psalm takes a turn, a 180-degree turn, because Asaph sees. He goes into the sanctuary of God, and he sees their final end. It is not easy to see pride. And the problem with living in this world, is that you and I see pride all the time that is not brought low, at least immediately. 
we see people who are powerful and wealthy, people in the media, often people who scoff at Christianity, who scorn the true God, and yet they're doing fine, and they have six million followers on their Twitter account. But God does not immediately bring them low. God eventually will bring down all the proud at heart. And it is a great mercy for God to humble our pride in this life. Because God is either going to humble the proud of heart in the final judgment, which will be awful, or he humbles us in this life so we cling to him through Jesus Christ alone. Our God will ultimately humble all the pride of man. And this brings me to my third point. God often uses our hardships and failures to prepare our hearts for his work of grace. God often uses the hard things of this life, our failures, our weaknesses, even our sins, to prepare our hearts for his work of grace. What is the essence of true humility? The essence of true humility is looking away from ourselves. That's why it's so hard to work on being humble. You know, I'm really going to try to be so humble this week. I'm going to be the most humble pastor around. I'm going to be able to just glory in my humility. See, even as I describe that, it shows how insidious pride is. I remember when I first came to know Christ as a young man, and I felt pretty good about pride because I had Pennsylvania Dutch pride. You know, Pennsylvania Dutch pride, you know, we're not boisterous and loud in the way we're proud. You know, if I make a soccer goal or something like that in those days, you know, I didn't boast about it. I just kind of held that pride in my heart and just knew that I was pretty good. And I didn't have to say anything about it. You know, it's, it's just so insidious that, you know, that we might not say anything, but what are we thinking? How do we compare ourselves with others around us? How do we drive in our cars? Doesn't a lot of our anger come from a real pride that I know what I'm doing and I know what's right and, you know, and so everybody else just doesn't seem to get it, but I really am right. You know, pride is so insidious. That's why the essence of true humility is looking away from oneself. That's why when we think of Nebuchadnezzar being humbled, no longer looking sideways or downward, but now looking up, it's only as we look up to our God in his glory and his greatness and are humbled by the gospel that humility grows. In fact, we might be focused on our weaknesses or we may be focused on our strengths. Both of those are still self-focused thoughts. We could say to ourselves, oh, how low I am, but that's still focused on self. God's humbling and his restoring of Nebuchadnezzar demonstrates that God is able to humble the proud and exalt the humble. And the application to us comes to us that instead of saying, look at my kingdom, look at who I am, look at what I have done, and humanly speaking, we may be doing virtuous things, relatively noble things. That's why pride is so hard to see, because we tend to compare ourselves. But the gospel comes to us and tells us our only hope is in Jesus Christ. 
And then God uses the storms of this life. Or at least we could say he uses profound personal discomfort. I like that phrase. Those are often the very instruments God uses under his hand to show us our true need and his grace. As long as we are comfortable and at ease in this world and feeling pretty good about ourselves, we are not normally ready to examine our hearts and to seek God and to seek the change that only Jesus Christ is able to bring. Do you see what I'm saying? God uses humbling circumstances. Maybe it's a setback financially. Maybe it's a disaster in your life. Maybe it's a chronic problem that no one else sees. Maybe it's a very painful something or another with a child or with a parent or with your health. Maybe it's even a failure or a a moral failure of some kind that God has used to humble you. And I would say, don't let that go to waste. God intends to use these kinds of things to ultimately bring us to our knees before him and seek him for his power to change. Our final point is that God exalts the humble not because humility is meritorious. God exalts the humble not because humility is meritorious, but only because of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This is a very important point. In other words, did Nebuchadnezzar finally just humanly understand something and now God could lift him up? Was there something essentially redemptive in the suffering Nebuchadnezzar experienced? No. It's only that when he lifted his eyes to heaven that his restoration occurred. We need something beyond ourselves. The danger of our pride, you see, stops us from seeing our need for God. And so God often uses circumstances in our lives to humble us, But think about how it is possible for God to exalt the humble, for God to lift up and restore those brought low. It is not that there is something inheritively redemptive in the suffering, in the trial, in the hardship itself. It is not that we should look at suffering itself, that it somehow brings us near to God in and of itself as if we could achieve closeness to God by means of some kind of monk like penance before God, as if we only had a lot of suffering in our life all the time, and that in and of itself would bring us near to God. No, it is not that humility is meritorious. It doesn't achieve that in and of itself. There are religions and those who practice that, and they might look holy to the world. Maybe they've renounced everything, but it does not bring them near to the true God. It is a human work, and it falls short. It is only because of God's work in Jesus Christ to redeem us, a king who voluntarily humbled himself, that we come to God. The humbled are only exalted by God's grace as they look to Jesus Christ. And by faith, they're united to Jesus Christ and lifted up in Christ and ultimately glorified with Christ in his 
glorification. I like to read about the Revolutionary War. And I always think it's interesting to compare the two Georges, George III and George Washington. George III, the King of England before, during, and after the war, always took it very personally that his colonies, to use his words, my colonies were taken away from him. The great irony that he went to his deathbed bemoaning the colonies being torn away from him was that largely it was because his failure that they were torn away. He wanted to be in charge of the war effort. He micromanaged it. He failed miserably. He didn't understand the war at all. And he was one of the greatest causes of the loss in the first place, all to the ruin of Great Britain in one sense. Now, the other George, George Washington, we certainly like him and know him. But the irony there is that George Washington did so well because he learned from his failures. And really, he never won a major engagement. Trenton and Princeton were relatively minor affairs. They were key. They were important to continue the war at a crucial time. But until Yorktown, finally near the end of the war, he simply did his best not to fight the British on their terms. He learned that he couldn't do that. He learned that the colonial army was very weak. His greatest strength, we might say, was to learn from failure, a human lesson, we would say, that he learned. And so there's a great contrast between the two. And, and if we go one step beyond that and say, let's contract Nebuchadnezzar and his greatness and the fact that he was humbled involuntarily by God and then lifted up here at the end. Let's compare him to a much greater king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ voluntarily humbled himself. He was king of all. He did not only build a human city, he created all things. But he voluntarily gave up himself for us. What a contrast that is. The way to true humility is that you and I keep our eyes fixed on the King of Kings, the one who humbled himself and is now exalted to God's right hand and invites those, any who would trust in him and turn from their sins to seek him. What a great God we have. It is only by trusting in this humble but now exalted Savior that our pride is humbled before God. Let us pray. Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for us, that he who was at the Father's right hand should make himself nothing for us, even to the extent of dying on the cross. Father, we thank you for the glory of God in the gospel revealed in Jesus Christ. Please convict us of our pride, but lift us up by the good news and by the great promise that we have in Jesus our Lord. We pray in his name.